0: This one young lady had said, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know what to do, and you, KSSU, became my family. And she broke down in tears and everybody hugged and, you know, it was a a great, great experience and a great story to hear.
1: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Mandel.
2: And I'm Jennifer Waits.
1: And on today's show, we're going to dig into the history of a college radio station that we've, we've known about. We've known about this radio station, but we've only recently sort of become aware of its interesting history. And this is a station, that's KSSU at Sacramento State University in California. And right now it's an online station. And Jennifer, how did its interesting history come across your transom?
2: Well, sometimes we have readers and listeners who write into us. And one of the founders of the station wrote to us, talking about the story of the station. And it piqued my interest uh, in particular because he also shared some archival material. So that's, that's something that I'm always a sucker for.
1: So here's an alumnus who, 20-some uh, years later, has taken that box out of his closet or attic or garage and endeavored to preserve some of the materials, his memories from the radio station be- that he helped to found there at Sacramento State.
2: Yeah, and often that's the case that it's founders and alums from radio stations that are doing a lot of the collecting and history work. So, but we
1: don't hear yeah. a lot of those stories, right? I mean, c- compared yeah. to the number of college radio stations that are out there, it's relatively few where we hear that the alums are kind of involved to this extent and really helping to to preserve uh, their stories.
2: Yeah, and you know, from my own experience, I've been working on some history projects at KFJC where I'm a volunteer. And leading up to the station's 60th anniversary at Foothill College, alumni got increasingly active as far as sharing tidbits from the history and, you know, sending off photos and mailing, um, you know, vintage reel to reel and cassette tapes. So I think, you know, a lot of the materials from college radio history actually reside with the participants, which makes sense. You know, a lot of us have saved things from our time in college radio. So many of us probably have boxes of cassettes and stacks of paper playlists if we were from that era of college radio. So so yeah, even though we haven't really shared that story very often, um, from my experience, it's it's often the alumni who are really involved with preserving the history of a radio station.
1: And in this case, you know, we know how the station got started, and I think that that's something often that is also lost, uh, where the simple story of who were the students or faculty or staff. Who got it together to even get a radio station going on on campus? Because uh, the principals often have moved on. In some cases, if if it's a long time ago, they're deceased, um, and there isn't it isn't really necessarily something which someone writes articles about, right? But-
2: exactly, and and then it's often a mystery. You know, when I visit college radio stations and talk to people about, you know, do you know much about the history of this place or how it was founded? It's pretty common for people really to not know the history. That's what I love about this project at KSSU by one of the founders, Jim Bolt, is Is that he really carefully has taken the time to write up that history.
1: Absolutely. And it's, that, that's why it's sort of interesting for us is to, to get an eye into this process, especially because it happened, you know, not, not 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, but, you know, happened in, in, in the late 80s and early 90s.
2: Yeah, you know, these very recent, well, it's not that recent now, but I, I think about even uh, low power FM and all of the relatively new stations that have come on the air, in particular, in the past five years or so, I, I would implore them to write up their history, because even five years out, sometimes you lose track on the details of how things got started. So I you know, I hope that that stations of every age take this to heart. That you know, it's never too late to write down and and get these origin stories.
1: So let's go ahead and hear that story from Jim Bolt, one of the uh, founders and uh, principal founders of Station KSSU at Sacramento State University.
2: So, Jim Bolt, uh, you're here to talk to us about the founding of KSSU today at Sacramento State. I want to first ask, why is it important to talk about the founding of this college radio station in Sacramento? You know, because there are so many college radio stations around the world that are special, but what is it that about this station and experience that you think is notable?
0: Sure. Well, I, I think KSSU is really a story of a startup that shouldn't exist back in 1989 the university did not have a radio station there had been a previous one that chris Prozio, my co-founder and i had researched in the library and it had been shut down in the late 70s and the frequency had been subsequently given to capital public radio but it was still supposed to be affiliated with the university Um, my role at sacramento state having to do with music, was really on the Unique Entertainment Council, and Unique was a program where we booked bands, there was a lecture series, uh, comedy, Uh, it was really all about student entertainment. And in a particular class that I had with Chris, we got to talking about how there was all this um, live music, entertainment, student involvement, but we were... A major university without a radio station, and I what year was?
2: High yeah, oh, so sorry. what year was that? Uh, that was 1989. And was that when you first arrived on campus, or had you been there a while?
0: Uh, I'd been there for about a year, and Chris and I were just talking about our high school experiences. My high school had a radio station. There was another high school that had a station that a number of my friends and I used to listen to, um, and it was so you know, personally, it was a little bit of an embarrassment that here we were at a twenty twenty five thousand 25,000 student university without a radio station uh, focusing on the college community.
2: Yeah. So then what, how did you get going? It, you know, a couple years later, you ended up starting this radio station. Maybe tell me a little bit about, you know, what was the music and radio landscape like at the time? Because I think a lot of people today might not realize... Uh, the importance of radio and that it was such a common thing on college campuses.
0: Sure. Well, the, um, you know, we, some of us were able to get KDBS on the air, which was UC Davis's student station. Great station. Uh, a few of my friends and I discovered it in high school in the early 80s. And they were playing new and experimental music back when REM was a cutting-edge alternative band, uh, Violent Femmes, Echo and the men, things that were coming over from the UK at, that really weren't being played on commercial radio, at least in the Sacramento area. Uh, there had been a radio station that experimented with modern rock or rock of the 80s format, and it was called K-pop, but it was very short-lived. I think they maybe had three months until they decided that the ratings weren't there. And so they flipped over to a a top 40 or R&B soul format. Uh, So really it was was Davis, it was their student station, and then the Quake and Live 105 in San Francisco that were really playing that modern experimental music that was not AOR, it wasn't top 40, uh, it wasn't something that was widespread. And incidentally, through the research on the station, we discovered that Rick Carroll, uh, who's principally responsible for that modern rock rock of the eighties format, had gone to Sacramento State, had worked in commercial radio and then had become a radio consultant, and he went down to LA and was the program director for KROQ. So he launched that and then went on to help establish ninety one X and I think he might have even had something to do with Live One oh five. But he was really the one that championed that format across the country.
1: Wow! And what are those? So, I mean, I want to ask you: Why are those stations important? I mean, not everyone has heard of those stations at this point. So why would it be important that this guy Rick Carroll went to Sacramento sure. State and started yeah. these stations, Carroll Q, and, and and such?
0: Right, right. Well, it was uh, it, it was new. I mean, back in the late seventies, early eighties there were burgeoning underground music scenes, right? Everybody has heard of CBGBs now because they have a, a, a restaurant in the Newark airport, right? They're a licensing machine now. Um, but CBGBs was where Devo, or sorry, Blondie, Talking Heads, Ramones, and a lot of those bands were really cutting their teeth in live performances. Um, Akron, Ohio is where Devo came from. The Pretenders were an Ohio band uh, in Georgia, you had R.E.M. B-52s. And then, of course, in California, you had an entire new music scene in the greater Los Angeles area that was punk, it was rockabilly, it was ska. Um, you know, there was a Paisley underground slice of, of the alternative music scene down there, which Bangles at the 3 o'clock were part of. Um, and then, of course, in Northern California, all sorts of bands. I mean, Green Day really... Uh, Got their start around that time or a little bit later. Uh, Call was a great band that came out of the Bay Area. Certainly Ed Kempis and a bunch of the others. And so, when teens were looking for sort of the next wave of rebellious music, uh, you'd hear about it maybe at a Tower Records, but you know mostly independent record shops and these college radio stations. So before the modern rock, rock of the '80s format became commercially viable. The only real way to hear these bands was a college radio station.
2: And when can you remind us when stations started? When commercial stations started playing this modern rock format that was sort of akin to what you might have heard on college radio?
0: Yeah, I, I think KROQ uh, started in I want to say eighty or eighty-one, uh, but it was right around that time. And then after they started to gain traction and, and show that it was a commercial success, other stations became uh, less resistant to adopting a new format.
1: But that was down in Los Angeles, right? And that was not a station because you know we don't want to take for granted everybody knows uh, California geography by heart. But a station like KROQ, also known as K Rock, that wasn't something you heard up in Sacramento.
0: That's true. Uh, that was uh, when we would make pilgrimages to you know Southern California on spring break or over summer. So the minute we could tune it in after coming out of the grapevine, would uh, my friends, and I would listen to it, but. Certainly, absolutely right. The only thing we could really get in Sacramento, again, KDBS, And if it was a clear night, you might be able to get the Quake or Live 105.
2: Yeah, and the Quake, you know, since I also I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Quake was a station that I listened to. And it seems to me that was a lot like KROQ. The Quake was playing new wave music and ska and punk music. And that's where I first heard a lot of that type of music, so I would imagine hearing glimpses of that in in Sacramento was pretty inspiring, also.
0: It was. Uh, we, you know, Sacramento was known for a long time sort of a, a musical void. There were some bands that almost became famous, right? But they were much more in the uh, traditional rock and roll genres. Steel Breeze was one. Uh, there was a band called City Kid, which later changed its name to Tesla, and of course became a a rock sensation for a bit. But the reality was we didn't get a lot of major touring bands or up-and-coming bands, but there were a few promoters that started getting their finger on the pulse of the new music explosion. And one of them was a, a guy named Stuart Katz, who I think now is a criminal defense attorney in Sacramento. And his first venue was called Club Minimal, and he used to bring in all the punk bands, so it was Black Flag, it was CSOL, it was DOA, uh, it was a lot of these, you know, new wave punk ska bands that were that were coming through. And so other promoters picked up on that years later, and we started to really get a, a decent music scene. And then a venue popped up off Sacramento State's campus called the Cattle Club in about 1989 and they started to really do the next wave of music. So Nirvana played there before Bleach was released. They uh, did a a variety of different music on different nights, and and it was great, and it became a go-to for a lot of people. And they became instrumental in our movement because we were obviously on campus. We were involved with music and entertainment productions for the campus, and we sort of started cross-promoting. And they'd come over and fly over the campus and we would do our events. Uh, and we would, of course, you know, promote their shows. And it was a really good partnership. They wound up doing a benefit concert for KSSU when we were really just trying to get our start.
2: Yeah, I think it's important that you talk about that whole music ecosystem that was happening at the time you were attempting to start your station where you have the local music culture and, and clubs that are playing the bands. And it sounds like you felt like a radio station was a part of that mix that was that was really missing.
0: Right, you know, as as we started to really organize, um, and I should I should back up. I mean, essentially, Chris and I found this the station, the previous station's history. We went to an address where the president of the university was sort of giving a state of the union. And then there was an open mic for questions, and I got up at the microphone and said, "You know, we don't have a student radio station. Uh, do you think there is opportunity to have one? Because we're interested." And the response was, "Yes, I think that's a fine idea. I'll have my people look into it." Uh, but of course, you know, nothing was being done, and we we had to organize ourselves and put some pressure on the administration. And really, the first the first instance of organization was flyering around campus, uh, and bringing a group together. And we, Chris and I were in this room. We had called a meeting a hundred people probably showed up and I got up in front of everyone. I said, look, if you're here to be a DJ, you're probably two years too early. No hard feelings if you want to get up and leave. And then half the room emptied, uh, Chris and I stood at the front and we said, look, we don't know what we're doing. We're starting this from scratch. Uh, we believe that we have different departments where we need people And the sheets of paper are on the wall. So if you want to self-select into a group there, pick a point person and send them to the front of the room, we can start to get organized.
2: And that's what it all began. (laughs) It did, yeah, yeah.
1: You framed this by saying it's a startup that shouldn't exist. So I'm curious, why do you say it shouldn't exist?
0: Sure. Yeah, so... We, we were told no at every turn. I mean, right, we were a bunch of college kids uh, becoming an annoyance in the administration's. you know, the one on their side, really. Um, we kept getting the brush off in terms of meetings. We could not find a faculty advisor. I mean, one of the first things I did is went to the communication studies department, and I spoke to the chair who happened to have been a, a professor of mine. And I said, you know, we're looking for a faculty advisor. We want to make this a legitimate, bona fide uh, part of the communications department. And he said, we're not gonna touch it. I said, what do you mean you're not gonna touch it? And he said, well, we've had bad experiences with you know, college radio in the 70s, and we're just, that's not on our priority list. And I said, all right, thank you. Um, and then we found, we actually found the professor who'd been the previous faculty advisor to the old station and we went and talked to him and he was even more adamantly opposed to getting involved. So, so Jim, <laughs> what happened? I, well, I mean, what
1: was it that soured everybody? I mean, yeah,
0: it's, you're, you're, sort of, right.
1: you're sort of leaving us some yeah, salacious yeah, so, uh, breadcrumbs there. I well,
0: know. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that was the thing. So we went and it wasn't really explained all that well in the archives, right? I mean, this is, you had know, card catalogs, we're looking at microfiche, we're trying to figure out you know what really happened, but we did find an article or two that essentially said KERS, which was a carrier station on campus, and it broadcast, you know, maybe a mile gr- greater than the the campus area.
2: So, um, like a low, it was like a low power AM yeah. carrier current station.
0: Right, right. but they were talking. The students were talking about alternative lifestyles, race relations, uh, things that the administration didn't really know they were doing at the time. And so they were ruffling feathers in the community, and the university started to get uh, letters complaining about the students on air. So um, is this different um, you know, I, than I, I
1: the think, station that the university sold then? I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little confused about the timeline no, here.
0: Yeah. Well, they they later wound up with a uh, – th- th- actually, I take it back. There was an FM frequency that the campus owned, and the low power station was slated to uh, to get it, and they got shut down before they were able to get I it.
1: I see. And so, so this this it, frequency right. was it ever really live? This uh, FM frequency was? Were there plans for it, or or the, or Not they abandoned the it once the 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 carrier current station got shut down?
0: That they, they abandoned it, um, and I believe it laid dormant for you know a few a number of years, maybe uh, I see. maybe a, maybe a year. Um, but then Capital Public Radio came in and said, "Well, we'll we'll help. We'll take that," and so that was the birth of that partnership. Um, while we were starting the radio station, this is the other interesting thing: the it, it became or It became known that the university actually had a second FM frequency, and so Capital Public Radio, which owned KXPR. Uh, was the the public radio station attached to the campus. They were principally a classical and news station, uh, but they wanted the other frequencies so they could do a jazz station and, of course, expand their musical horizons. Um, (laughs) The the reality was neither of them, uh, neither of the stations were going to have any student involvement. Uh, Again, the faculty advisors didn't want anything to do with the the upstart student station, uh, but we did find eventually a new adjunct professor who was willing to help. And she said, I think it's a great idea. My background is TV, media, uh, and radio, and I would love to be your faculty advisor. So she helped us really get involved with um, other parts of the university. She, she knew the lay of the land from the academic standpoint. And then the other important person who was really instrumental in helping us establish a club. Because in order to, to book rooms, have meetings, and maybe even get funding from the associated students, you needed to be a legitimate, organized club on campus. And there was a guy by the name of Dean Sorensen, uh, and we jokingly called him the Dean of Music, although Dean was actually his name, um, was my program advisor for Unique. And he helped us navigate the club and the student government of things. So we did wind up with two very, very strong allies. Uh, but again, you know this process we were hoping would take maybe a year, maybe two years, and it really barely squeaked in under the two-year mark. We had and what equipment?
2: Oh, and Sorry, I'm I'm right curious. There. So at uh, at the beginning, at the beginning, did you have designs on some of the existing FM frequencies on campus, or like what were your thoughts about how you would broadcast?
0: Sure. Well, we, I mean, obviously we, we wanted an FM frequency, right? I mean, we, we weren't going to wrestle the existing frequency away from public radio. Uh, when the second one came up, we thought, well, that'd be, that obviously would be our preferred way to go. It, it is already there. So we would just need to set up a studio, get equipment, um, and then start broadcasting on that frequency. But there was no way that the university or Capital public radio was going to relinquish that to a bunch of students, uh, even with a faculty advisor. The interesting thing was that we wound up getting the Hornet, which was Sacramento State's student newspaper on our side very early on, uh, as well as some of the other local papers and, and television stations. And they started putting pressure on the university and also capital public radio. And they were lobbying publicly to give us one of those frequencies, um, so it was interesting because there was you know we had to do we had to walk a fine line on the one on the one hand, we certainly wanted to make it known that there was another frequency, and that you know hey there's a, a student radio station movement here, uh, but we wanted to let other people connect the dots because if we became you know seen as as rebel rousers, then that could be a further pushback on the on the establishment of the station. The last thing that was really um traumatic for a number of us and also very tragic is one of the other key founders, DJ Willis was tragically killed in a hit and run accident in the summer of 1991. So I had graduated and he was slated to take the reins. Chris and I both graduated and he was going to be the station manager. He was very, very talented, knew an awful lot about, um, audio production. I mean, he had a home with an entire production room, And some of us got our our start with audio production at his house because it became a regular hangout for us. And he and his girlfriend were on a scooter on the way to a video store, probably a blockbuster to return a movie. And somebody ran through a stop sign and hit their scooter. Wow. And he wound up with a crushed femur and was in the hospital. And within a week, I think he passed.
2: Uh, That's tragic. And so uh, had the station launched at that point?
0: It, it had. They, uh, the university had, I think as as part of a <laughs> a bone to throw us, gave us an audio booth and a production booth, but they were both in the university library. So we only had access to them at the hours, during the hours the library was open. And although we were there and the library staff and management knew we were there, we would still get knocks on the doors asking us to be quiet And we, you know, we tried to soundproof the rooms as best we could. Uh, We explained, hey, we're a radio station. We know it's strange we're operating in a library, but that's not our doing, right? So uh, we were outside of the main library stacks, but still, if you walk by, you could certainly hear some of the things that were going on. Uh, In order to keep programming going through the night, we actually recorded our audio shows on a 12-hour VHS tape, and then... Replayed them the minute the library closed, so we had Crafted. twenty-four hour programming. Right, I mean low tech, but it, it kept things going. And we heard, you know, kids who were studying for finals and students who were doing different things would listen to us whenever whenever they could. So that was, you know, we were doing our service. We thought.
2: And how so? When the station launched, how did you broadcast? Um, since the FM was a pipe dream, and the and the school wasn't going to give you a signal. How did you end up broadcasting?
0: Originally, it was it was 5:30 a.m. Uh, it was a carrier current. Uh, the The old antenna is still actually up on campus. I walked over to find it with the two engineers when we went back for the 25th anniversary a couple years ago. Um, but really, it was it was limited to on campus and maybe the parking lots half half a mile away, maybe. So it was it did not have a great reach. Um, the advent of streaming is really what had the station, uh, or got the station to the next level. I mean, between when we left in 91 and probably the mid two thousands, there were another few instances where the station almost died. It was not getting funding. It was, uh, not appreciated by maybe the student government and, or the university. And I think it just sort of, um, languished. It it didn't have a lot of, uh, support and there weren't a lot of partnerships with the other student media entities. Um, and you know, some of that's chronicled in the school paper and and local media as well. Uh, but when we reconnected with it, um, it was, it was partially because I had a box of old press clippings. I had kept everything that, that was relevant and I'd moved it around the country a few times. And then I was going through records and this box was tucked away in the garage, and I'd forgotten that I I had everything. So I started to assemble it, put it together, uh, and then I contacted the station and said, "Would you like your history?" And i said, w- "Are you kidding? We would love our history." Uh, and so Chris and I made a visit to the station. Probably I don't know it was its 18th year in operation, and and it was great. I mean, we popped in, and it was everything you thought a college radio station would be. It had stickers on the walls. It had LPS were stapled to you know different parts of the office, and uh, we saw a last a last staff meeting for the year, and this one young lady had come in from another part of California, and essentially said, I didn't know where to go, I didn't know what to do, and you KSSU became my family, and she broke down in tears, and everybody hugged, and you know it was a <laughs> it was a great great experience and a great story to hear.
2: It's gotta be really gratifying to have helped start a college radio station that continues to exist. And and I think it's really cool that you have, you've assembled a website where you share some of the material that you saved over the years, like old news clippings and audio files. And and I'm curious why why you think it's important to share an origin story of a radio station, of a college radio station in particular.
0: Right. Well. Well. Thank you. I uh, the, the website's out there on Weebly. Um, very easy to do. Uh, but it was, you know, it was for the 25th anniversary. So, we'd gone out for the 20th. Uh, I think 20 of the original founders had come in from different parts of the country. They let us take over the studio. Uh, we did interviews, and it was, and we got to meet station management staff, and and it was it was a great day. Right. We we spent the weekend there and sort of ran around our old stomping grounds and. Some of us hadn't seen each other in 20 years, excuse me. So it was a great reunion, um, for the 25th anniversary. I really wanted to archive all of the history that I had. Um, you're right. It's, it's photographs, personal photographs, uh, press clippings, a timeline, uh, and some of our very first audio shows, which are, are laughably, um, novice, which they should be, right? I mean, that's the essence of college radio. So essentially, you know, archiving the website for the 25th anniversary was really something that I felt was important. Um, You know, they did have a binder that I'd scanned all this information in, and it was hard copy. I'd given them CDs or DVDs, but it wasn't really something that could be used as maybe a training tool for incoming staff uh, or management. And And I do think no matter what you're involved in, it's always interesting to know the history. So it was a lot of fun to put it all together. Uh, And I really wanted to make it as comprehensive as possible and also emphasize the fact that students are capable of much more than people give them credit for. Um, Yes, you're 18 to 21 years old. And yes, you're trying to figure out your life and do different things. But the reality is, if you have a passion for something, and especially something that uh, is promoting student voice, student engagement, and uh, and as a passion from a, a personal standpoint, right, from your musical interest to sports broadcasting to whatever that may be, uh, college radio can be a wonderful place to explore all of those avenues.
1: And that voice you just heard is Jim Bolt. He is one of the principal founders of college radio station KSSU at Sacramento State University, founded back in 1991 and still broadcasting today. This is Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Riespendal. I'm also joined by Jennifer Waits and Jim Bolt. I I wanted to play the role of pedantic radio nerd. That's one of my jobs here at Radio Survivor <laughs> because I know we'll get questions from our listeners. Um, you know, it sounds to me like the station when it started, KSSU, in 1991. You're on the AM dial. I think you probably had probably a Part 15 radio station, and which is a little different than a well, it's a it's a Carrier current is part 15, right? But carrier current means that the signal only goes along literally the electrical lines. You wouldn't have an antenna. And it sounds to me like you actually had an antenna there uh, and allowed the signal to get off of campus a little bit. Is that correct?
0: That that may have been the case. Uh, initially, we were carrier current. But but as I said, after after DJ had passed away, I came back and picked and up the reins to help manage the station. And so the antenna may have um that following year when the two other engineers were still involved. So that may have been the actual transition there.
1: And so that meant you had some off-campus listening. Is that correct? That you, you knew there were some folks who were not students or not students on campus who were listening?
0: The, there, were, there were some. Um, always hard to get uh, listener numbers, right? But there were, there were a couple of, of people in the community who were very interested and would call in to different specialty shows uh, that they were passionate about.
1: Because it's interesting to me, you said that the the earlier station, uh, which had been taken off the air due to controversial programming, was also uh, a low-power AM signal. So uh, I'm I'm impressed that you had... uh enough people listening at that time and then later on earlier to get upset, <laughs> right? Community members to, to get upset <laughs> right, about this right. low powered AM station. I, I would have been more less surprised if it were a full power FM station or even a low power FM station, but these uh, tiny AM right. signals aren't very strong. So it, it's sort of amazing to me that such controversy can be generated with such small signals.
0: Right, right. Well, ops can be dangerous, right? So people need to <laughs> voice their opinions and, and counter them. I, I'm not sure. I, I wish I had access to those, those letters. They'd be very interesting to read.
2: Well, and, and you know, in my I've, I've dug into the history of a lot of college radio stations and and I've heard about angry letters from people in the community about carrier current stations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they sometimes there's this way that they're leaking into the local phone lines. And I've seen that lore time and time again where people are are somehow catching it. You know, maybe not in the intended transmission method, right. even.
0: Right. Well, the other thing I, I should point out, too, and, and this was, you know, again, back in the 991, um, our first wave of DJs were actually trained by FM cable. There was a, an entity called Access Cable, still exists today, and they were on your digital cable or your analog cable at that time, um, I believe. And it was Linda Rhodes, our faculty advisor, that said, look, they have a program where you sign up and you pay your $25, and for four weekends in a row, you spend Saturdays, I want to say it was four, or six hours, learning all about audio production, learning all about um, on-air PSAs, and a variety of different things. And then at the end, you actually received a license that allowed you to broadcast. So we could have taken those licenses and gone to a commercial radio station. Um, and Access Cable allowed us to broadcast the Edge Sac State College Radio on their um, FM cable station. So we actually had listeners far be- uh, far in advance of us actually having a radio station.
1: Oh, and, oh very and, cool. And did that continue yeah. on after the AM signal was on the air? Did, did, were you continually available yeah. on the local cable
0: channel? It did not continue. They, um, I think at, at some point, you know, we were we were expanding our shows. Other were getting involved, and, and Access Cable said, so, "Look, we really support what you're doing, but we are Access Sacramento, and we're a community radio station, so we can't be taken over by Sacramento State students uh, who are doing Sac State Radio. So you guys are limited to maybe a few hours here and there. You have your own station now. We'll we'll sort of stand by you and do what we can to help." But we think the time has come for you to sort of, you know, go out on your own.
2: So, Jim, before before we leave, I, I wanted to see if you had any advice for people, for students today who might want to start a college radio station. What is your, your hot tip?
0: <laughs> hot tip. Um, it, well, I, I would say, I mean, one of the secret star success really was not pretending to know much about the process, right? I mean, we were... And we learned everything that we possibly could. We learned about the history of the previous station. We learned how the inner workings of the campus administration um, was set up. We learned about club organizations, student government, because you can't do it by yourself, right? You need partnerships, you need alliances, and really, you need support of your campus media, the Hornet newspaper was instrumental in getting the word out and really rallying other students around us. Um, we did our own promotions. We, we held 24 hour music marathons where we had petitions and we'd have students come and sign. We'd say, would you support college radio? They'd say, yes. We'd say, do you know, we don't have a radio station. They'd say, no, they'd sign our paper. And, you know, we, we just kept at it. So keep hammering away, keep learning as much as you can, and realize that partnerships and promotion are are huge to any effort to establish a college radio station.
2: Well, thanks so much for sharing, sharing this history with us. I think it's interesting to find out how radio stations first got started and the trials and tribulations, and I think it's just as relevant in 2019 as when you first started dreaming of this in 1989. So thanks for coming on the show.
0: Sure. Well, thank you. And and I should say, just in closing, the, the staff and management of KSSU have done a tremendous job. Uh, it's, it's every bit the college radio station that we would have wanted it to be. And at the 25th reunion, they actually gave us, uh, Chris, myself, and the rest of the founders, a resolution that talked about the 2,500 students that have gone through that radio station in some form or another. And that's you know, that's an amazing thing and something that uh, I'm very proud to have been a part of.
2: Very cool. Yeah, that's, that's got to be really inspiring. And, and it's great that they're able to meet the founders as well. So I, I think it's, it's nice that you're part of that legacy.
0: Thank you. I've uh, very much enjoyed our time. And I, I appreciate you having me on the show.
1: So Jennifer, uh that was another interesting story about a college radio station. Um you know, I wish we could know a little bit more about the earlier incarnation of, of, of college radio at Sacramento State and learn more about those controversies because uh, I
2: know the challenges of the microfiche, you know, like right. it's these tales are lost and and I imagine these uh you know the professors who had gotten burned by the prior station. It sounds like they must have been pretty tight-lipped about what the controversies were. <laughs> Didn't want to talk were, so about it. Yeah, it, it piqued my interest too.
1: <laughs> you know, but but the fact that uh, that uh, part fifteen, which is a legal, unlicensed, low-power AM transmitter, which generally speaking doesn't go very far, could still spark controversy. I guess that's that's at least uh, a feather in a cap for the power of radio, even super low-power radio.
2: That's right. Yeah, it's um, there are many ways to spark controversy, and, and and definitely I've encountered that just in digging through archives at various radio stations. You know, it it could be something as simple as playing punk rock music in the '80s. You know, might have tweaked somebody.
1: You know, and it is interesting. You know, the, the role that college radio played, uh, especially in sort of the development of popular music. You know, as we know it now, you know, it, it gets sort of called indie rock, or it gets called modern rock, or it gets called alternative rock. You know, and it, and and as genres do, they 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 get fractalized, and it gets much more prismatic, and breaks apart, and gets all sorts of new names. But it, and it's something which Jim touched on in our conversation, how. You know, in in a pre-internet age, in a pre-streaming age, you know, getting access to a lot of these sounds and even knowing that they existed in the first place, right? To know you could even go buy a seven-inch or or a record or a CD, uh, you really had to rely on word of mouth or or on radio, and that there were very few markets in cities that had stations playing this stuff uh, back in, in even the late eighties and, and the ones that did, they were very often college stations.
2: Yeah. And, and it's interesting thinking about being in Sacramento, which is, you know, it's a major city. It's the capital of California, but you know, he talks about how, you know, a lot of the major bands weren't coming to Sacramento. So they were sort of a secondary market. And, and so They may have felt even a little more off the radar, off of, you know, off of the circuit. And in places like that, you might need radio radio stations like this even more to help kind of spread information about more underground artists.
1: And what's also interesting to me is that the influence of the station is not necessarily proportional to its signal, right? And that in that you know here kssu got started as a very tiny am station and then in the 90s uh, moved on to the internet as as many college stations did as we discussed in the last program in fact uh, two college stations were pioneers of uh, simulcasted uh, internet radio uh, a service which we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of here in late 2019 Uh, you know but you know, you think, well, that's not much of a footprint, right? It's not like a 50,000-watt FM station. It's not like a KROQ in L.A. or a 91X, which was a FM border blaster, right, uh, coming in uh, from uh, Mexico into the San Diego and L.A. markets, right? Not that kind of power. And yet it seems as though KSSU still had cultural influence enough to help kind of provide uh, more of a foothold for alternative musics, for punk rock, for indie rock in, in, the, in the greater Sacramento area.
2: Yeah, they seem to have a connection with the local club scene. And uh, in in an earlier conversation with Jim, we also talked about Tower Records, which started in Sacramento. So you also had that. And I know this from my own experience. And what is Tower Records?
1: Have- don't, don't let that reference go by. <laughs> because unfortunately, Tower uh- Records has been gone long enough that many people may not have been exposed to it.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it was a major record store chain, uh, you know, so it started in Sacramento, and then it ended up all over the world. Um, And, and so I would, I would think that that would have had a big influence on the town of Sacramento. Well, why was Uh,
1: Tower so, let's, can't just say it's a big record store chain. So was Sam Goody, right? I mean, you know, uh, there were a lot of, uh, so was Musicland, right? There were a lot of record store chains. Why was Tower significant?
2: Yeah. What makes Tower significant? I don't know. I mean, I can only say from my own perspective, I remember seeing some pretty major bands in Tower Records parking lot in the Tower Records parking lot in San Francisco. So, you know, there were stores that would bring in bands, you know, to perform live and have signing sessions. Um, It was the kind of record store that would have an import section where, you know, maybe you didn't have one of these modern rock type radio stations in your town, but if you went to Tower Records, you could find music from other countries that you weren't hearing on the radio. It was so a big was,
1: chain record store that didn't feel like it was a big chain. I can I yeah. can speak as as a kid growing up in New Jersey in the eighties. Um, you know, I'd make a pilgrimage to the one or two Tower Records uh, outlets that were in the area. Because of the fact that they simply had a selection that what that you did not see anywhere else, uh, just incredible breadth and depth of music. Whether you were into metal or punk or industrial or experimental music, um, you know if it were in 1989 and Tower didn't have it and they couldn't get it, nobody could get it. Is the way it felt, you know. Really, if you were looking for something that was off the beaten path that you couldn't find at your local Sam Goody or mall record store, you went to Tower. And you and you made sure to save up for that trip because you never knew what you're, you're going to find and how quickly you would and they were, your, empty your wallet.
2: And they were large record stores, right. so yeah, a big selection, an unusual selection, uh, you know, and definitely intersections with college radio, where you know I know of college radio DJs that were working at Tower Records. I remember being in a Tower Records and hearing a band for the first time over the PA system and. Um, you know, I, I still it ended up becoming one of my favorite bands, the Cocteau Twins, and I remember vividly being in Tower and hearing it and just feeling like I've never heard anything like this before. So it kind of had the effect, as college radio did mm-hmm. for some people, where you might, it was a place for music discovery. So, so yeah, I think Tower Records was definitely important to Sacramento and and certainly must have had some, connections with KSSU and and this whole music community that that was seemingly growing you know around the time that they were starting up their their radio station, starting to dream about it in 1989.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot more for folks to see and read about KSSU because uh, Jim, along with many of uh, the station's other alums, As put together a great archive website. We'll link to it in our show notes. You go to com slash podcast. This is episode number 220. We'll have links to lots of the other things we've talked about on today's show. We try to make sure every single set of Show notes is a fresh rabbit hole for you to go down a fresh radio rabbit hole so uh, if you're looking to kill some time and learn more about radio you want to go there also just to learn more about what we talk about here on radio survivor i'm Paul Reese with me here is Jennifer Waits and Jennifer hello i have uh, I have a new story here that I wanted to share with you and with our listeners. And Nielsen, which is the company which performs ratings services for uh, radio in the United States, just released a report specifically about small and medium-sized markets, small and medium-sized radio markets, um, in which they say radio is still reaching the vast majority of people in these cities, in these markets every month, right? I believe it. I know. And, and 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 they're saying that in fact it's in, in small and medium sized markets, it's more significant than in the large markets. What they say is ninety nine percent of adults, twenty five to fifty four in small and medium sized markets are exposed to radio or listening to radio every single month, right? That's darn near everybody, right? Yeah, (laughs) you know, even when they count teens, so uh, uh, you know, people under the age of eighteen, they're counting ninety-one percent are exposed or listening to radio every month. Um, Radio's dying, (laughs) I say in in question mark, and I and I think we ought to put a little bit more uh, around that, just so people understand when we talk about a small and medium-sized market. Those, you know, those are radio industry terms, but people don't always. Uh, know what that means, and so I'll I'll tell you what that means. Uh, this means all of the markets from market 49 all the way to 263. So the markets are ranked by their size. Number one is the New York City Metropolitan Market. So beginning with Oklahoma City, which is a market, total number of people surrounding that area who listen who can listen to radio is 1.28 million, all the way down to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Population of seventy eight thousand six hundred folks in all of these radio markets. These are markets where Nielsen does provide ratings. Ninety nine percent of the people there are still listening, and you know we we're constantly. I feel like Jennifer, we have to constantly come back right to say uh, radio isn't dying here. Uh, rather, I always make the argument that when, you, when nearly everybody listens and then you have new formats like podcasting and satellite radio and streaming radio, uh, Spotify, Pandora, etc., you'd have to expect that radio would take some hit. But it seems to be going strong, all things considered.
2: Yeah, and I'm curious, did they put this into the context of what these numbers are for larger markets?
1: No, this was a, this this report was specifically about uh, the smaller markets and and a medium and, and and smaller markets, uh, and you know, do you want to guess what the most popular format is of of stations listened to in the medium and small markets, United States?
2: Uh, why don't you tell me?
1: It's country music. Country music is number one. Number two is news talk combined, they call this. So that means news talk means both your kind of commercial news talk stations, uh, you know, your 24-hour AM stations, as well as uh, public radio news talk stations. So something which is principally an NPR affiliate, but focused on news talk, not your jazz or or classical stations is number two. Uh, Up there as well is just on its own commercial news talk stations, pop contemporary hit radio we call top 40 adult contemporaries number five classic rock is number six uh not a lot of surprises there uh what i will note is nowhere in the ranking is uh college radio or community radio but in part that's because uh the vast majority of these stations don't participate in nielsen ratings
2: right and yeah, it's interesting. The survey is for all types of stations. You could have non commercial in there. Like you mentioned, there are public radio stations that are certainly included in some of these categories, like news talk.
1: Yeah, I don't know what community uh, or a college station would qualify as a news talk station. Uh, right. Because news talk generally means that you're pretty much 24 hour news talk, right? Right. Um, as opposed to, you know, even like a, a Pacifica station which may have a lot of news talk programming during the day, but will also feature music programming and eclectic programming at night. So at least in, you know, in terms of the very top formats, uh, it's generally dominated by these uh, either commercial or public radio formats, uh, which should not right. be surprising. Um, but you know, I think with radio, with all sorts of broadcast media, a rising tide raises all boats, and even a tide that continues to stay in uh, keeps all boats afloat. And folks who might listen to a news talk station can spin a dial and might bump into a college station, a community station, a low power FM station. Uh, you know, we're talking about the entire medium here, uh, not only these kinds of stations. Uh, but I, I just thought that was interesting, and it's also interesting yeah. that Nielsen is saying that you know, in many ways, that the radio is somewhat more important in smaller. Uh, in mid sized markets, uh, where, where maybe perhaps there, there are just uh, fewer media choices. I also wonder if, you know, what they find is that most of the listening that's not at home is in cars, and there are fewer car commuters in a lot of the major metroplexes like New York or Boston, uh, DC uh-huh. or, or San Francisco, where often if you are on the BART or you're in the subway in New York, listening to a radio can be difficult. Because right. you're underground much of the time, and so there uh, certainly, I think uh, people will be pushed much more towards uh, podcasts or their uh, owned music or or something, you know, streaming music if they can still get data underground. But nevertheless, uh, I, I thought I think it was great to see uh, that turn up, and for us to know that radio continues to be important, even as it's su- supplemented by lots of other audio media we're still seeing that radio radio is up there. And there was another report uh, released last week, which was the Spoken Word Audio Report, which was put together by uh, Edison Research. They're responsible for the uh, annual Infinite Dial Survey, which surveys people's consumption of audio media. And they did it in conjunction with NPR. And what they found is that podcast listeners are also still consuming radio, in part because a lot of the radio they're consuming is got talking, just like podcasts. And so it sort of uh, combats this notion that it has to be an either or situation. Instead, what we seem to be learning is that folks who get turned on to spoken word programming like in podcasts uh, just want more of it. And so-
2: Yeah, it's interesting. And I also think that there are many ways to consume, there are many more ways to consume radio now, which could also help you know, maintain these really high numbers. If you can listen to your radio station on your smart smart speaker. yeah, and they're usually or, taking
1: that into account w- in, in nowadays yeah. in radio. So they're taking into account smart speaker and streaming, right? As and as radio, phones. yeah, they're not making it specifically broadcast. What they are speaking of principally is about broadcast stations. So yeah. whether they're being on, whether they're being streamed, or whether uh, they're on terrestrial radio. Uh, but yeah, I think what we're seeing is this overall growth of people who who are back into audio again.
2: Yeah, um, definitely.
1: You know, and that seems to be, you know, it, it, to me, it, it's a wonderful thing, obviously, as, as a radio enthusiast, but also because it is uh, such in, in many ways an inexpensive medium for people to be producers in as well as consumers of uh, you know it is not expensive comparatively speaking to make a podcast in a lot of ways it's easier to make one than it is to make a video and also you know you don't want people watching youtube while they're driving we're <laughs> doing all sorts of activities uh to see it all continuing strong here uh as we close out the second decade of the 21st century uh should make folks in specifically in community radio and college radio and all kinds of non-commercial radio and community podcasting uh feel like they've made some good choices of where to spend their time
2: yeah it's a great i think it's a great time for audio and it it's nice nice to see these numbers which you know are surprising but not <laughs>
1: Yes, and so uh, I think as we, uh, as I mentioned, we're closing out the second decade of the uh, 21st century. We're going to start looking back at this decade. Uh, Way back in 2009, when we started Radio Survivor, we closed out that year with a series on our website at radiosurvivor.com about what we saw as the top trends in radio for uh, the the aughts, as they're often called, from the years... uh, 2000 through 2009, and we're going to do this again looking at uh, this second decade, the, the, the 20 teens from 2011 through to 2019. I guess we'll include the year uh, 2010 as well, since we didn't back in 2009. It'll be, I'll be interesting to see uh, how these trends uh, compare, or uh, if, if we saw something that we thought was going to change or increase, did that actually happen?
2: It's a bit surreal because we wrote our first, the first report, we wrote about a decade that we hadn't really been covering on Radio Survivor. And this time now we get to reflect back on things we were covering. (laughs) So it's kind of unbelievable to me that it's been a decade and and there's been an incredible change in the radio and audio landscape in the past 10 years. So I think it's going to be very interesting to do that reflection.
1: And we'd love to know what you think about both 2019 in radio and sound and this last decade. What do you think... Were the most important trends and stories or, or what happened that you didn't think would happen. If you were thinking about it at all 10 years ago, uh, what came to fruition? What didn't come to fruition? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to share some of your ideas and some of your stories here, both on the podcast and radio show, as well as on our website. Drop us a line, please. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And if you want to send us an audio note... We haven't asked anyone to do this in a while. Uh, we'd love for you to do that as well. Uh, just use the audio application in your smartphone, uh, your, audio, your voice memo application, and just email it off to us. Email it to uh, podcast at radiosurvivor.com and just make sure you let us know that uh, you're giving us permission to put it on the air and put it on the podcast and we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And of course, you can hear Radio Survivor on more than two dozen podcasts non-commercial radio stations across North America and Galway, Ireland. And if you're listening on the radio and you didn't quite finish out the show or you didn't catch the early part, uh, you can hear us as a podcast too. We're available in pretty much every major podcast app from iTunes or Apple Podcasts to Stitcher to Spotify to Radio Public we're there you can also find us right on our website radiosurvivor.com slash podcast we're also on Facebook and Twitter uh, we have a pretty active Twitter feed full of great radio stories that Jennifer and I curate so you can learn even more about the wonderful things happening in non-commercial radio by following us on Twitter at Radio Survivor. We are a listener and reader-supported enterprise. To learn more about that, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Jennifer, uh, thanks for uh, bringing Jim Bolt onto the show to tell us more about KSSU today. It was a really fun conversation.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. You know I love digging into college radio history, so it was very fun.
1: And thank you for spending another hour with us.